2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is an honor of a recently deceased individual who was a bit of what I like to call the man. It's Burt Reynolds died recently, and we thought we would do his most famous role in which he plays a badass who goes by the name of Bandit. So it's Smokey and the Bandit tonight on the show. This is episode 94 of the show. You can find the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 94. Uh, let's say hello to another man in my life who is not yet dead. His name is Robert Johnson. He's my co-host. How you doing, sir? What's up, Slippery? I'm doing aight. Happy to be back. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Now, these are super good good times that Robert and I have been having uh, in the pre-show content, which is available for our Patreon supporters. We were discussing various injuries we've sustained recently uh, due to our manliness. And uh, those in our um, actual anarchy cadre know about my ice cream knife incident. Uh, but Robert cut himself preparing fruit, an apple of sorts, uh, with a knife. And now he has a pony band-aid on his inky-winky tinky fingy. So before well, we get was, to the last night... one of hundreds, hundreds of apples that I cut, which would think you would think that I would be good at it by then. But, you know, your attention wanes after the 500th apple. And eventually it's you're, you're just meat on a chopping block for your own malice. So you're just like your own... Um, voodoo doll like instead of hurting the doll you hurt yourself directly you just cut out the middleman in here to save save a couple of dollars here and there yeah i was hoping to teach myself a lesson and i did pay attention when you're cutting stuff dumbass right and that was my lesson as well is well number one uh, don't go bungee jumping down in mexico they just don't have the regulations just like they don't have regulations on the warning labels about not getting ice cream out of a carton with a knife granted it was a butter knife but it was serrated and it cut through my hand uh, well, you know, on the edge, not like through the middle of the hand. But if you would like to contribute um, to cover my medical expenses, which amounted to a couple of pieces of sterile gauze, uh, a few pony band-aids, and we probably ruined at least one towel, uh, you can hit us up on Patreon. So actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Uh, throw a few shekels our way to um, do the emergency relief fund for both myself and Robert for our various manly injuries uh, before we get into the last night's portion of the show. It is annoying how... The idea that regulations keep us safe is so prevalent in the world. I mean, why not just regulate that injuries can't happen? I mean, what, what, and it's really just, you know, the market, people don't want to injure their customers. And if you injure a whole bunch of your customers, you know, people tend to not go to your business. These are very good points you're making, but I'm afraid that you might need to make them again in the last night's portion of the show, because there's a ton of really dumb regulations that we need to talk about. Oh, shit. In Smoking the Bandit. So if you're ready, okay. if you're ready, sir. Okay, let's try. Okay, let's see if I can do the timing here. We're going to get in the last night's portion of the show. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters. We are here talking about Smokey and the Bandit tonight on what will be the 37th episode of The Last Nighters and showing us more. can be found at lastnighters.com slash 37. Before we get into the Google description, let's say hello to my co-host, Robert. How you doing? 
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This I'm is doing great, buddy. This is going to be a super fun show, I think. And I think you're going to be wrong about how great this movie is. Exactly. I knew you loved this piece of shit. I knew you loved it. Why? There's nothing to this movie. It's an extended episode of Dukes of Hazard. That's all it is. It was written by a stuntman, and like it's a piece of garbage, and all the dialogue is ad-libbed, and it has no right to be half as good as it is, and it's still only half as good as a movie. You heard me. Touche. Touche. Well, let's get into the Google description before we uh, really tear this a new one. Smoking the Bandit came out 1977 action romance, one hour, 36 minutes, 6.9 on the IMDb, 3.3 uh, 3 out of 5 on Comments and Media, and 70, 79% Rotten Tomatoes, 91% of Google users like it. The description is Big Anos, played by Pat McCormick, wants to drink Coors at a truck show, but in 1977, it was illegal to sell Coors east of the Mississippi River without a permit. Truck driver Bo Bandit Darville, played by Burt Reynolds, agrees to pick up the beer in Texas and drive it to Georgia within 28 hours. When Bo picks up hitchhiker Carrie, played by Sally Field, he attracts the attention of Sheriff Buford T. Justice, Jackie Gleason. Angry that Carrie will not marry his son, Justice embarks on a high-speed chase after the bandit. Came out May 27, 1977. Director by stuntman Hal Needham, featuring the song Eastbound and Down, which later became an excellent HBO show starring Danny McBride. Box office of $300 million. Your thoughts on the description, Robert? Uh, this movie made way too much money. This movie should not have been as popular as it is. Um, it's a pile of hot garbage. And if you like it, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Not sorry. All right. So apparently you disagree with Alfred Hitchcock, who... I mean, it's it's a glorified episode of Dukes of Hazzard movies from the late 70s, early 80s. And the only reason it got made was because the director happened to be with Burt Reynolds, who was like the number one movie in the world at the time. And he read this script and he's like, this is hot garbage, but the script is good enough, I guess, to make a movie, I guess. And I'm not doing anything, I guess. So I'll make this movie, I guess. And it all fell into place. I mean, it really benefits from uh, the guy who plays Snowball or Snowman or whatever, the country singer who wrote this great song, Eastbound Down. He also wrote such classics as She Got the Mine Shaft. Or no, She Got the Mine. She Got she got the Gold Mine. I Got the Shaft. I mean, he just, he, he was great, not as an actor, but as a songwriter. And that's the only reason this movie, I think, has any kind of nostalgia for anybody, because I don't understand. I mean, Jackie Gleason as Buford T. Justice was kind of fun, but he was basically just, you know, like a, a Boss Hog type character. I mean, granted, before Boss Hog, but I don't know. I don't, I don't understand the love for this movie. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that Burt Reynolds rocked the mustache like his entire career and, you know, was able to do that. But I don't even think he's like that great of an actor. I think he was of that era where he was able to do these movies and be a great success and more power to him. Fantastic. But I really don't know if this kind of thing would do great now. Not that it has to, but watching it today, I was very, you know, underwhelmed. Let's put it that way. All right. So you just watched this. So it's, it's still fresh. It's, I watched it's it three days fresh? ago. Oh, you watched it twice. Or you meant, no. you meant today as in like recent times. Like Yes, like as in current day today, like not per- like today today. Okay, all right. Well, thank thank you for clarifying that. I thought that you would you would meant that it hasn't had time to like ruminate and it's, oh, it's it ruminated. as fresh as Coors beer needed to be in order to be transported anywhere. That was the only thing I liked about the movie was that it was based on some horseshit regulation. Right. It's a totally absurd premise, right? That that it's illegal to transport it across state lines because permits and because the um the beer needed to be refrigerated or something. It didn't have preser- preservatives in it. And so somehow right. it became a delicacy because it was hard to get. Right. It's still a terrible beer. I mean, Coors is not a good beer. I'm sorry. I've had it. I know. You know You know what I'm saying? You've had Coors. There are worse mass-produced beers. I think Budweiser is worse. Probably Miller is probably worse. But, you know, it's not. it's not like a great craft beer. No. Well, I mean, this is well before great craft beers. But it is... The the it's a it's a good impetus for a story, just like this movie is a good impetus for a show on the last nighters, which can be found on the Launchpad Media, where we're always launching new ideas in your direction. So check it out at the launchpadmedia.com. 
No, wrong. <laughs> wrong again, Daniel. You're so wrong. All night long, you're going to be wrong. All right. Well, I will sit here in, in my wrongness and be wrong and beg for donations on our Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. By the way, our last Patreon uh, subscriber who we talked about last week sent me a sticker for the Culinary Libertarian, which is pretty cool. It looks, oh, there it is. There it is. Looks yeah, nice. Yeah, that's baller. So thank you for that, Mr. Reed. And uh, what, the, what the fuck was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Smokey fucking the bandit on a gaming table. That was uh, the reference in Mallrats, which came out in 1995, which was one of my uh, favorite movies when I was a younger man. And I loved that the Smoking the Bandit was like so cultural, culturally relevant, relevant still that Kevin Smith decided to make a whole point of dialogue about it. Yeah, it's ubiquitous. I mean, a lot of people know Smoking the Bandit. Um, I don't understand why. It's kind of a fun movie, but you know... The dialogue was so crap that they had uh, Jackie Gleason like ad lib pretty much anything. All of his dialogue, it was so garbage. And then the, the whole uh, like the romance with Sally Field was just like thrown in there. He's like, "Got get this," and then they're like, "And then when did he have time to get custom plates? When? Tell me." All right, so I think we lost a couple of minutes or about a minute of you talking because I couldn't hear anything. Maybe our audience still heard you, but I think you're making the point that when he takes this bet to go all the way to Texarkana and back to Atlanta, where they're thirsty for this Coors beer, in 28 hours, when does the clock start? Because in the conversation, it makes it sound like we have this race tomorrow and it's going to end and I want the Coors for the celebration. So therefore, it's about 28 hours from right now when we're having this conversation. Yet, he asks for a car... And they get him a car, install a CB radio, get custom plates for it, deliver it to him. He can still go to Snowman's house, talk to the wife and the nine kids, and then get on the road. Well, I'm sorry, but your 28 hours is up probably by about five or six times. Probably more, because getting custom plates out of a government agency, that's probably going to take you 10 weeks, son. Yeah, baby. Horseshit. I call horseshit on this movie. Right, but, you know, for the, the premise of the movie being as absurd as it is, you kind of can go along with it. Let's just forget about the whole concept of time here. And even though the movie entirely revolves around time as its central tenet, central premise. Yes, it is. But it's in its own like uh, nature of time. It, it's sort of like, you know, we were coming up on daylight savings ending and the government decreeing that, oh, all of a sudden the, the earth and the heavens are going to shift by one hour everywhere except for Arizona and maybe Florida in the future. I think Florida's talking about not shifting um, with the rest of the country sometime soon. Uh, and it's one of those scourges that throws off everyone's sleep cycle, causes more accidents and injuries as a result, and a bunch of lost productivity. So it really is a multi-billion dollar cost uh, against the economy, and, and people end up losing as a result of it, all because the government wants to decree that the sun shall rise or fall uh, an hour different than it does. Did you want me to add anything to that? <laughs> I, I figured that would be a great takeoff point for a rant by Robert, but apparently you've already blown your rants. So I'm a lot of rant juice, baby. I mean, you're right. It's it's a completely. I mean, I don't know how arbitrary it is. It's, it's the government trying to do good, right? They're trying to save. What wasn't it originally trying to save whale oil or something, so that we would save the whales? Well, all it took was John D. Rockefeller to save the whales, something government could never do. Yeah, that robber baron who tried to impose a monopoly and get monopoly rents against people by buying up all the smaller competitors at the same time as increasing output and lowering the price by about 80% and then giving up on trying to get a monopoly because the word got out that people um, could just come up with a, a petroleum plant and he'd buy it. So they would sell him stuff that wouldn't even work. It would just look like a petroleum processing plant and he'd buy it. So uh, it wasn't very long before he figured that he would no longer be uh, in the buying uh, smaller competitors business. And he, he lost out on the, um, the Texas oil field fines. So my little side rant here is that Monopoly is a myth. Uh, he did not decrease output to increase price. He, in fact, increased output, decreased price. And as a result, the whales were saved, just as you said, due to his own greed to better himself by providing value for others the capitalist well, way well and also when you're really really big you're also quite slow to react to market forces you've got all kinds of different people that got to sign off on different things you got a lot of bureaucracy in your corporation or whatever your organization is and like these small little people i think they call them wildcatters could just run out and search and go find oil faster than any one giant big monolithic company could do it so there is room yeah for, and you're right 
outside of government force, monopoly is a myth. Right. It's very short lived if if it can be attained at all. And it's you have to be satisfying all customers at all times in all places. Right. And as soon as you try to get monopoly prices, monopoly rent, which is, you know, higher prices because you've decreased output, that's an open invite for anyone else to come in with a better process, a lower price, higher quality, different flavor, whatever. So you can't maintain that position. But how does that tie to the movie, Robert? Yeah, how does it, Daniel? Try and wrap this one back into it. I'm, I'm curious how this segue is going to work. All right. Here's the segue. The ICC and the CAB, so the Interstate Commerce Commission and the Civil Aeronautics Board, were both recently shut down at the time that this movie was made. And so that relieved regulations in the airline industry and also in trucking, interstate trucking, which was one of the cruxes of <clears throat> of this um movie was that the law could go after these people, ask for their manifest, search their trucks, and uh, basically harass them to get them to pay uh, for being able to transport across state lines. So those two things, that was some of the only examples that I'm aware of, of government actually shrinking. And the result was transportation via truck got cheaper and cheaper, and airline fares went down. And so the average person had a better quality of life as a result. Well, and what is the argument from government side of what regulations do, that they're going to protect the consumer? So in this instance, they protected the consumer from themselves, from buying potentially skunky beer, I guess. That's that's the extent of what they did, when that could easily be solved by the market, easily. Oh, we I bought this beer and it was skunky. Okay, here's your refund. Well, Problem solved. To be fair, there are beers that live on being skunky, and they do quite well, like Heineken. Yeah, people enjoy that particularly skunkiness. It's true. People might prefer it that way. Yeah. Now, I have an example where in Coors, the, the, the idea is that because it's not pasteurized, it needs to be refrigerated the entire time. If it uh, gets to room temperature, it gets ruined, and thus would be kind of a rancid skunky. So there's a, a gas station on the Canadian border near me. And they get probably past date beer, like discount beer that they then turn around and sell on the cheap. And so I would occasionally go down there and see what they have on offer and, and buy things. Well, there were a couple of um, beers that were, you know, in an average store, you'd see them for um, like 10 or $12 for kind of a one and a half liter bottle, like those wine bottle size ones, like Goose Island, something or other. Well, they were selling them for three bucks. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll try that. Got it home. Skunky as fuck. Like, totally ruined. I'm sure that it was one of those ones that had to be refrigerated all the time and probably just had not been. And therefore, it got unloaded in this discount value bin type store. And I made the mistake of buying it. I'm not doing that again. So that's the market force. That's my response to it is, well, if I ever see that there again, I'm never buying it. And so you're right. Once people buy a product, they're not going to buy more of it if the product is terrible. Right. So there's a natural incentive for the producer to either come up with a new method to transport their beer faster or refrigerated or whatever, or to alert the consumer or to just not sell it there. And then, you know, it would be people at their own risk transporting it and potentially skunkifying it. I, I think it was funny that even that even at the time, like presidents would hoard Coors beer because they couldn't get it otherwise. Yeah, you've been you've been doing some uh, background research on this. So lay it on me because you mentioned a little bit of the, the where this movie came from, it was um, Hal Needham, and he was a, a stuntman, and he had written this script, and he just happened to be friends with Burt Reynolds, and he had shopped the script out to people, and no one was interested. And he eventually good reason. showed it to his buddy, and his buddy was like, his buddy was Burt, he's like uh, reading this um, back of the napkin style <laughs> script. He was like, this is the worst script I've ever seen, but he thought it would be fun. And as soon as he got Burt's name attached to it, and like you said, he was a big star at the time, all of a sudden, you had studios stepping up with 4 or $5 million as a budget. Right. Well, you know our friend, the negotiator? I do. I know him. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I was doing trivia with him the other night, and I mentioned that we would be doing Smokey and the Bandit. And he goes, Smokey and the Bandit? I love that movie. I watched that movie just a few days ago. Love it. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And he proceeded to tell me the story that you just said, but he went into a little bit more detail. Apparently, he was doing the movie Gator with Bert, and they were roommates at the time. 
And they were on, I forget exactly where they were, maybe in like Louisiana or something, somewhere east of the Mississippi. And he'd notice that two beers, two cores beers kept disappearing out of his rented home each night. And it turned out that like his housekeeper or something was stealing them. And he, he thought, and then he found out why. And he's like, oh, that'd be a great idea for a movie. If they're, if they're so valuable that they're, they're getting stolen out of my fridge, this is a great idea for a movie. And so, yeah, then he craps out the crappiest script that ever crapped out of anybody. And he just got so lucky to be roommates with like the biggest star in the world at the time. And his name carries a lot of weight when you're making a lot of money and making a lot of people a lot of money. And so then this movie gets greenlit despite just being atrocious. And luckily they got a whole lot of good talent, like some big name stars to just kind of go along and just kind of make a movie regardless of what the script actually said, because once the car chases scene really gets going, it's really just one extended car chase for like about an hour and then it's over. And it kind of ends like an episode of Duke to Hazard. I mean, it's just kind of silly ending where the the big Enos and the little Enos send them off on another goose chase because it's just so much fun to drive around in a car with cops chasing you. And there's even they don't even want they don't even want to get caught by Sheriff Buford T. Justice. They don't want to send B- Sheriff Buford T. Justice off on a wild goose chase of his own. They want to be being chased by Beaver D Justice because the being chased part is just so fun because, you know, it's like Keystone Cops or some kind of wacky slapstick movie where, you know, it's more fun when they're just kind of making him look like an idiot. But tell me, Daniel, I want to know, why do you like this movie? Well, I'll tell you, Robert, the reason I like this movie is it's because they're clearly having fun making it. It's sort of like how we talked about on the Billy Madison episode where Billy Madison uh, was essentially Adam Sandler's excuse to bring together a bunch of his friends and goof off and have a good time and turn a tidy sum as a result. Like it was a small budget film and they um, returned on that five or ten times, you know, and this thing uh, had a five million dollar budget initially. And then like the day before shooting, the studio comes in and says, oh, we're going to cut the budget by a million bucks. And so there's a big scramble to re, you know, reschedule all the shoots and make it a little bit more streamlined, cut out a couple of things. Um, and it grossed $300 million. I mean, that is a huge, huge win for the studio. This was the second highest grossing film of 1977, only defeated by one popular film that Murray Rothbard hated. What? Yeah. What did he have against Star Wars? <laughs> Uh, I will I will post the uh, the review that he put together as Mr. First Nighter and post it on the lastnighters.com website and you can read it for yourself. It's uh, he didn't like the um, the space opera trope and uh, he thought that it would never take root that no one would really care. And yeah, <laughs> brilliant guy. But uh, I think he was this is the one spot I disagree with Murray Rothbard. Well, there's a few points where I disagree with the brilliant Mary Rothbard, and it will probably mostly be around movie reviews. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that this movie only had four cars, four versions of the Trans Am, and apparently they completely destroyed it on the bridge jump. And, I mean, it just looked like that the Trans Am went through a whole lot more damage than anything you could do with four cars. Apparently, the car was barely drivable at the end of the movie, and it, they were all four of them were kind of Frankenstein into one last version that was barely moving towards the end of it. But it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, they were certainly hard on them, even, even not uh, taking into account the bridge jump, which did destroy one of them. But I mean, they were they were driving this car rough, you know, like squealing tires, banking turns. They were really uh, putting it through its paces. Now, in the scenes where they're, you know, shooting inside the car, like the dialogue between Frog and Bo, um, you can actually tell that they're being towed because the car is like tilted up and it's a little bit um, at an angle and uh, the speedometer reads zero. <laughs> 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 so that that's pretty funny. But um, back to why I really like this movie is I like the idea behind how they are just out there having a good time and just spitballing. I mean, they're like coming up with dialogue kind of on the fly, improving. Uh, it reminds me of how Ghostbusters and Bill Murray's lines were almost all ad-libbed. And granted, Bill Murray is a comic genius. Um, Burt Reynolds, not so much. And Jackie Gleason, he he does come up with some pretty funny stuff, that some bitch. Uh, he's, um, I, I, I find it a very fun movie. Not a movie that you're going to go and get into the technicals, like regarding time and distance and other uh, such factors. But if you're there to have a good time and watch tires squeal and 
yell 10-4, good buddy, yeehaw, eastbound and down, you know, into a CB radio, that's a good time. That's a good time. And speaking of, of the car, um, because the car was so heavily featured and because it's so badass in this movie, the, uh, the number of sales of this car increased by almost double in the two years following. So it was a big boon for Pontiac. And it's sad that they discontinued this car back in, uh, I think, 2006 or something like that. So kind of unfortunate, but it had a, a nice little uh, uh, resurgence there for a brief period of time in the late 70s. And apparently they even made a bandit version of the car as a tribute, which is kind of cute. Yeah. Are you talking about the recent one where it was like this um, high performance shop that has been creating them um, because Pontiac no longer makes, well, is Pontiac even a, a company anymore? I mean, it was part of GM. Did it get folded into other things? I'm not that much of a card guy to know the answer to that, but I think it was back in the day, back in the eighties when they had a, when they had a bandit version, I could be wrong though. Okay. Well, that's what I read. I know that there was a, a niche car manufacturer that had redone a modernized version recently in the past couple of years. And they actually brought Burt Reynolds um, to their factory, which is, you know, just like a big garage shop um, to shoot some promos with it. And he's like tottering around like with a walker. <laughs> and this is pretty recent. I mean, Burt was in pretty rough shape, I think, the, the past couple of years, because uh, I think he lived a, a pretty decadent life for a little while here in the 70s and 80s. Why not? You know, the wine, women, and song. Banging and, and Maybe That's a little bit of the, the cocaina. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but, you know, it's the 80s. I mean, it's kind of like, I'm pretty sure that was the norm for the time. Let's talk about, Daniel, if you don't mind, let's talk about the morality and the actions of the main characters. All right, so yes. they this are was propositioned. One of my, this is one of my yeah key points in my notes, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, so they're propositioned to service a customer, right? They got somebody who wants something done and they're offering a service to do it. Now, in the course of doing it though, they destroy a lot of property. They damage the property, they smash the mailboxes, they smash up a baseball field, they not only they endanger a whole lot of cars as they're driving around on the freeway. I think they only smash up Buford T. Justice's car, but maybe they smash up. So they also smash up some other some other cop cars. And then they there's like a time when a cop car lands on a semi truck, and he's like, "Could you let me off at the next exit?" Which is a pretty cute line. But I, I would clearly and completely put the blame of that property damage onto Snowman and Bandit. Um, and I, I view them as fairly immoral characters, even though they are the protagonists. Where do you stand on their actions? All right. So uh, I thought you were going to hit on when they get to Texarkana to the deep, too. to get they the beer. They steal the damn beer. Yeah. They break in, right? They smash the door in and then rob the joint. Yeah. And then and they're going to leave an IOU or whatever. Uh, please bill the guy. But then they're like, I don't have time for this. I got to go. Right. So they end up, yeah, stealing 400 cases of Coors. And so, yeah, right there is is a bit of a, a we'll call that an NAP violation, uh, a, a clear theft and not um, not something that you should support, especially in your heroes in the movie. Um, now, they also do drive very recklessly. They put a lot of people at risk. Now, this is an interesting question, and, and you see it a lot of times in libertarian circles related to drunk driving, fast driving, reckless endangerment type situations uh, where there's no victim, there's no crime, right? That's kind of the mantra. So until someone is actually injured or done harm, no, no crime has really occurred. But Robert, my question is to you, and, and I think that this is kind of open for, for discussion for me, at what point is putting someone else at undue risk uh, sort of like a, a violation against another person? Well, that's a... Sticky question. Um, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I tend to fall on the side of no, no victim, no crime, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you can't necessarily show damage, there hasn't been damage done. So you could have somebody, and then this has happened to me, you know, you're driving along the road and you see somebody in your lane passing another person coming straight at you. And you're like, holy shit, I don't know if this guy's going to make it. <laughs> and he could be hitting you. And so you have to react and slow down and kind of go off to the side of the road to make sure that he gets in there and gets past the guy. Now, clearly no harm has been done really. And you're, you're kind of assuming risk by even being out there. So I'm not saying that you're entitled to a risk-free environment when you get out in your car and you drive around, but clearly in common practice in societal norms, we accept a certain amount of risk 
And then beyond that, we're like, no. Beyond that, we're like, no, this is this is above and beyond, and we do not accept this much risk. Like somebody, I don't know, fishtailing and super scaring you to half to death, and then, you know, whatever. I mean, you could cause somebody to have a heart attack, and is that an NAP violation? Or were they going to have a heart attack anyway? Even though if you didn't hit them, you caused them to be frightened enough above and beyond what would anybody would consider normal that they would having a heart attack would directly caused by your actions. Is that an NAP violation? I would lean towards yes. It'd be difficult to prove, obviously, but I would definitely lean towards yes in that situation. Um, I think it's all solved by private roads, of course. If you have a private road, you can delineate and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And there'd be clear boundaries on that sort of thing or, you know, within reason, that sort of thing. But um, I don't know anything, anything, what I said, you want to, you want to jump off of? Yeah. I mean, I think it is kind of a challenging mind problem to consider, but it all boils down to, is it a justification to have a monopoly on justice to solve for such a problem? Like, so the alternative isn't utopia. It's not perfection. It's compared to what? right? Compared to the current situation where those things happen now, and there happen to be these um, road pirates who may or may not witness such things and um, threaten people with murder to stop them, to accost them, to uh, send them a, a bill to extort them, versus a privately owned um, property, such as a road, where there would be uh, certain conditions necessary for you to be able to be on that road. You would agree to these conditions and you would pay uh, a fee or you know some kind of transaction, some kind of contractual obligation would be at play there. So there'd be some skin in the game for uh, the, the user of the road. And if they violate the terms of that contract, they are going to have some re repercussions that are spelled out ahead of time. And I think that'll go a long way in a tendency towards a better resolution than what we have now. Not saying it's going to be perfect, but the tendency will be an improvement. Certainly. So where do you fall on then with the bandit? And I mean, clearly in an ANCAP type situation, they would be out of a job. There would be no need for this crazy thing to happen. They wouldn't have to have one guy be the blocker guy. And there wouldn't even be a law against this being transported. But in the current situation, where do you fall on them as even taking the job? Let's let's say that they went and the, the, the beer place was open and they were able to get all the beer, fine. But even this idea of doing this job, is it a completely moral situation? Because they have to drive like 110 miles an hour just to make it. Yeah, so that's where we get into the, the lack of reality of the of the movie, right? Because like the 28 hours obviously doesn't make any sense. And then when they say 900 miles, um, if you look on a map, you know, and route it in Google, it's actually like 400 something miles. Like it's it's way off. And so they're, they're just using these as like big signpost markers of here's the plot real sketchily on the back of a napkin. And we're just going to go out and fishtail in a car and drive real fast uh, <laughs> and make up lines. But I think taking the job... Um, if the premise is you're going to need to drive 110 miles an hour to make it in the amount of time that is allotted, then yeah, they're taking a situation where um, they're probably putting a lot of other people at risk. Like when you saw him driving on the roads in the Firebird, they're coming around corners like over the center line significantly, like they're using up the whole road. If there happened to not be a closed section of road so they could shoot a movie, um, if you were driving around like that normal at 100 miles an hour and, you know, going around corners blind in the opposite lane, yeah, you're going to you're going to end up in an accident as a result and you're going to kill somebody. So you're going to end this journey in, in probably the first, you know, 50 miles out of the 900 mile journey. So you're saying, fuck Burt Reynolds. He's a fucking terrible person. <laughs> right. Well, as far as the character goes, yeah, I, I, I think that um, if, if this were a real life situation without a close set, yeah, they, they wouldn't have made it. Uh, very far driving like that um, consistently. Well, I wonder if this, I mean, I imagine there was some sort of amount of this, right? I mean, bootlegging was a thing. This was, this is the origin of racing, racing cars in America, where these souped up cars were meant for bootleggers who were trying to outrun cops. This was an actual thing that happened due to the government outlawing liquor during prohibition. And it created a whole class of people as criminals and essentially started the the act of racing cars, birth of an industry, birth of NASCAR and birth of all that. 
But it's all in an effort to stop people from freely going about and freely trading with each other. Well, you've got a little bit more history than than I do on this, but it is interesting how uh, the market finds a way, right? Like uh, Ian Malcolm in in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Whenever the government imposes some kind of regulation or or blocks people from doing something that they otherwise would want to do, the market usually finds a way around it and in in response to it to uh, essentially obsolete that regulation or that impediment imposed by government. Um, in a way, it's it's a good thing, but in another way, um, it's it's something that you wish wasn't necessary because it clearly is a slight misallocation compared to what it would otherwise have been in a totally free market, right? Right. Like resources would not have been devoted to solve a problem such as this because it wouldn't have been a problem such as this. And as you know, with scarcity and, and uh, you're, you're trying to best allocate scarce resources. Um, if you have to solve a ridiculous problem that shouldn't exist in the first place, you're not able to use those resources for something that actually, you know, is, is a better, um, more advanced situation where, you, you know, you don't have to solve for a government regulation. You're expanding things, you're, you're expanding progress and solving for problems that are more um, natural, you know? All right. I'm sure Paul Grugman would be super excited about all these government regulations and all the forcing companies to come up with ways around them. But it's really a case of the seen versus the unseen, where we just don't get to see all the innovation that would have happened in other areas had they not had to devote the resources to go around this idiotic regulation in the first place. 10-4, good buddy. Woo-hoo! All right, let's talk about CB radios for just a minute. Um, so apparently CB radios were a bit of a craze in the 70s, even before this movie, and that is why they are in the movie. But the movie was attempting to capitalize on something that was popular and ended up amplifying the CB uh, culture and making it even more uh, powerful. So in a way, it was trying to exploit something and it ended up benefiting it greatly. And I think that's a pretty interesting situation because you've got this... Um, almost symbiotic relationship where CBs were popular. The movie's like, all right, we want to glom on to something that's popular to help out the movie. And then in return, the movie's highly uh, successful and it makes CBs even more successful. And I think that this is one of the, um, this is early stages of product placement, really, if you think about it. I mean, like older movies, earlier 70s, 60s, 50s, not a whole lot of product placement, really. You start seeing it in the late 70s and into the 80s and so on. Yeah, kind of like how uh, Debbie Does Dallas made blowjobs popular and just made it more popular. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess. You're you're the key man on the history here, Snowball. I remember being in the 80s, growing up in the 80s, and I never had a CB radio, but I remember thinking they were cool. Now, I think that probably came from Dukes of Hazard because I don't remember ever having seen Smokey and the Bandit growing up. But I mean, this is all in the wake of Smokey and the Bandit. So I probably caught from other people thinking it was cool. And there's something about CB radios that are cool. I mean, now we have phones that have completely made them obsolete, but I think they're still used in trucking today. I don't know how how prevalent they are, but I think people still do it. It is kind of an interesting community that kind of forms around this and the whole trucking industry and how they kind of support each other in the movie and in real life and how they kind of like let each other know what's going on. Like if there's a speed trap somewhere, you know, and that sort of thing. So that's cool. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of an interesting uh, a way to be able to have short distance communications with people, you know, and there's a whole culture that grows up around that. I remember using CB radios when we were working out in the agricultural fields uh, to be able to communicate with the other operators of equipment out there. And when you were working the night shift, um, occasionally you would pick up on some just weird, random people uh, being out on these channels, just talking nonsense. I remember picking up some some guy who sounded like he was talking about conspiracy theories and aliens and shit. Uh, but you know, I mean, it was it was a way for somebody to get out there and, and interact with people, and uh, it's kind of a I don't know, kind of a cool thing. I don't uh, have any desire to have a CB radio these days, um, but there is a um, an app you can get on your phone that's called Marco Polo. And they call it a walkie-talkie for your phone where you sh- shoot like short little video clips and then send it to somebody and then they can watch it and, and send something back. So it sort of works in a you know, back and forth kind of situation. And it's kind of fun. It's, it's sort of based on a, a similar concept, um, you know, because technology has, has advanced far enough to where there's now video. Like you see me right now. I see you right now. Some of our audience sees this right now. Patreon supporters. High dollar Patreon supporters at uh, lastnarriage.com slash Patreon. 
so, you know, it's kind of a, a cool thing. You see a lot of things advancing. Um, let's get into some controversial stuff, because we often have this discussion point in the movies that we talk about, where could this movie be made today? What are some of the things that stand out that wouldn't pass the PC police these days? I can point out a couple of things. Number one is the sock full of quarters in uh, Burt Reynolds' tight jeans. Uh, the second thing would be the Confederate flag on the front of the Trans Am. And the third thing would be how they talked to Sally Field uh, in sort of a bunch of innuendo, and they talk about how she has a nice ass. I don't think you could do a lot of those things if you were remaking this movie today. No, the feminists' pants would be in their collective bunches with all of that. There would be all kinds of claims and crying from the Twitterati and the left and lefty blog posts all about how horrible and misogynistic the, the, the makers of the movie are. When, you know, I understand that they have a right to make their opinion. Of course, everybody does. That's perfectly fine. But a lot of times they will not only denounce it, but they'll call for some sort of either governmental action or some kind of action in, on far, part of the industry. Like, you know, these movies should not exist and let's let's work to get them banned or whatnot or totally destroy the lives of the people making these movies and just how they're the worst people in the world. And you just see how it's really, you know, it's been this kind of cultural shift. Like, can't you just let them have their own thing? No, can't let you have your own thing. You can't look at a movie and say, this was clearly not made for me. This was made for other people and let them have it. No, you have to conform to what I want and make the thing as I would have made it had I invested my millions of dollars. Oh, wait, I would never do that. I don't have millions of dollars to invest in the first place, but I have a very loud voice that I want to complain about. So basically the point you're making is that when they talked about doing a job that can't be done, they were talking about how in 1977 they could make this film, uh, but today it could not be done. Not the way it is. I mean, they might make some kind of update, some kind of you know 30th, 40th, 50th anniversary or some kind of remake, but it'll probably be gutless. I can't imagine that it would have the same sort of thing. Even if they had made the, the Dukes of Hazzard remake today, I don't even remember if there was a whole lot of outrage about it. But even if they were to do that today, and that was only, what, 2000, mid-2000s with Sean William Scott and those other people? Yeah, I feel like you could get away with a lot more back then, even. Yeah. Yeah, you got, like, old school, and you've got, um, why am I drawing a blank on this? Uh, I don't want to say Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Dodgeball. Uh, what are they called? The, the Frat Pack? Like, all of those guys, the Ben Stillers and the Sean William Scotts and all of them. Will Ferrell making a lot, Vince Vaughn making a lot of these types of movies, where I think that nowadays you couldn't even make a lot of those things. Well, yeah, I mean, comedy is really just dying, it seems to be. there. I've seen a lot of people talking about the death of comedy. Uh, Owen Benjamin talks about this a lot. Um, there are not just him, but there are others. Um, it seems to be like either you're super lefty or you are you know, super marginalized and the lefties aren't even making that great of jokes. It's like, because they're all worried about not being PC enough. And even, you know, how the left eats itself when one person like makes a joke, then all the left will even eat their own lefty peoples. It, it, it really creates a chilling effect on other comedians. Yeah, and it's, feel, it's a shame. It's it feels shame. like, it feels like the only safe joke to make these days is something anti-Trump. Like that's all comedy is right now. And some of it's funny, but in a, oversupply and overabundance, the value drops significantly for each of those jokes. Yeah, if that's the only safe way, place to go and, and everybody's there, what are the odds you're going to come up with something new and golden? It's not super high. Right. And how original are you going to be? Yeah, insulting his authority. Nothing but simple, old-fashioned communism. Happens every time one of those dancers starts poon-tanging around with those show folk fags. I don't know what that is. What are you doing? That's Jackie Gleason talking about uh, how they were disrespecting his authority and his son because Sally Field was a dancer and uh, she was on Broadway for 12 minutes. And so he was upset that she stood up his son at the altar and ran away. And th that was some of his ad-lib lines. I, I wrote it down because it's hilarious. And the insult of my authority, that's where um, Cartman gets authority from. Is from this I wondered about that. It sure seemed like he was doing his for T justice in South Park. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. This movie did have a lot of uh, long-term influence in popular culture. The long arm of Burt Reynolds. This is his penis. They call you the bandit. 
And then uh, he also said um, he would punch, when he gets home, he'd punch his mama in the mouth. And I was like, that's another thing you can't say these days. Who said that? Buford D. Justice was talking to his son, said, boy, when we get home, I'm going to punch your mama in the mouth. Well, isn't isn't there a real wasn't didn't he name Buford T. Justice after a real person in Florida, like a real sheriff or somebody like that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I don't know if he had, you know, similar mannerisms as Jackie Gleason, who might may I say you're the goddamnedest pursuee that I have ever pursued. Now that the mutual bullshit is over, where are you, you some bitch? Yeah, I did appreciate some bitch. That was that was good. <laughs> I don't know. I you know, there are some fun things, but I think if you watched your average episode of Dukes of Hazard, you'd be like, yeah, this is probably better. Yeah, well, Dukes of Hazard, I think, came out after this. Like, this yeah. movie happened, and it was, like, so popular, did so well, that, and then you get a lot of this um, good old boy, southern uh, hick, car-driving nonsense, such as Duke of ha- Dukes of Hazard. And I think it also indirectly led to um, Knight Rider. Okay, I can see that. A lot of cars driving around, going on adventures. Yeah. Talking, having a good time. Which then led to Disney Pixar's Cars, which was an episode we did uh, not too long ago. See, here I am plugging all of our old catalog here. Wow. All right, I have one more question, and then we get into the final summary and review, because we're... Finally. We are... We're, how's the song go? Um, we've got a sh- long way to go and a short time to get there. We're running out of time on this one. Yes. All right, so Snowball, Snowflake, Snowflake. Snowman. Snowman. <laughs> uh, the left are Snowflakes. Snowballing is when in in Clerks, the Kevin Smith movie, the uh, it's not just in Clevin, not just in Clerks, <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Anyway, look it up. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna defile this discussion here. Anyway, sacred discussion. It's totally sacred. Uh, he gets into a bar fight with these bikers. Now they instigate it by saying that his dog bit them and they're lying, and then uh, they pick a fight with him, beat the crap out of him. So as he's leaving, he drives over their bikes in his semi-truck. Is this a proportionate response to the aggression, Robert? No. Not only is it not a proportionate response, the, the conflict was over. At that point, you're just like getting revenge on something, even though it was a fight you started. I mean, yeah, they were talking like, yeah, your dog bit me, blah, blah, blah. But it's still his decision to start throw the first punch. He didn't have to. He could have just walked away. Well, they were threatening to kill his dog. They were threatening to kill his dog. Okay. If they were threatening to kill his dog, then he has every right to defend his dog. But after the conflict is over, he's just like, I'm going to get some revenge and smash their thousands of dollars of motorcycles, of which he's not even sure those are theirs. They're just a bunch of motorcycles that happen to be there. Does he know that those all belong to just those guys? No, he does not. It's another leap on the back of that napkin script. Yeah, they're, 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 those are theirs, and he's getting his revenge, and the crowd's going to cheer. No. All right. Well, let, let's break it down, then. Let's get into the final summary review here on The Last Nighters, episode 37. Show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 37. Why don't you go first, Daniel? All right. I, I will go first. Ladies first, right? <clears throat> so as much as my co-host hates this movie, and Alfred Hitchcock apparently loved this movie, uh... I'm going to go and say that I had a good time in watching it. I knew going into it that I'm not going to get like a very tight, technically sound script with uh, a lot of things that are going to make logical sense within the movie's own framework. But I am having a good time watching Burt Reynolds be a badass who's very good at being a show off and uh, being crass and getting away with stuff and trying to be charming. And it works for me. It works for me in that it's entertaining and I'm having a good time. And I want to just crank up eastbound and down. Uh, these 18 wheels are rolling. We've got a short time to get there. The beer's in Texarkana, and they're thirsty in Atlanta. And so I think that this is actually a really good, fun movie. Not a technically good movie, but with the background story about how it's a guy who's super famous, and he's like, fuck it, I can do whatever movie I want. My buddy's got a terrible script here that I think will be fun to do. Let's do it. That, that also is a cherry on the top. So for me, The Bandit is a 7.7, Smoking the Bandit. So Robert, your summary and review. 7.7. You know, hate is a strong word. I, as much as everything I say is hate speech, probably, according to some law somewhere in the world, I don't hate this movie. I just think it's a nothing movie. It's, It's just a movie. It's not particularly well acted. It's not particularly well shot, well directed. 
well written. It's just uh, it's just something you would put on and you're then you watch it and it's over and you're like, well, got through that. I don't know. It, it seemed like they had a fun doing it. I, I grant you that. But did I have fun watching it? I think that's the more important question. And the answer is not really. Um, I wasn't on board with the protagonists. I didn't, I, I appreciated that it was some bullshit regulation that was the impetus for the script and the story, but I didn't like any of the characters. The only one I liked was Sally Field as Frog because um, she is looking good and she's charming, but I didn't appreciate the the main characters as thieves, as property destroyers, as reckless endangerers. I appreciated the fact that they were thumbing their nose at the law, at the at the ridiculous law, but I didn't appreciate everything else they did. So I wasn't on board with their struggle. I wasn't on board with them in the choices they made. And ultimately, I think as an audience member, you have to cheer on the choices of the protagonist. Not always agree with them, but either find them interesting or go, yeah, that's what I would Yeah, something like that. Either you get behind them or find them interesting enough to, so that you keep watching and you're like, oh, I, I can't wait to see what this crazy person's going to do next. And none of that happened for me. So I thought it was like a half-baked idea that the director and the, the, the director guy came up with. And clearly it was. And it turned into a half-baked of a movie. And clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about because it was a huge hit. So whatever. It was a culture of the time and audiences flocked to it and you you know made a lot of people's lives better more power to you but i thought that this was not a good movie didn't enjoy it don't recommend it um but no one's gonna listen to me it's a cultural movie anyway it's a cultural you know stone you know what i'm trying to say anyway um this is a this is a five out of ten it's the first time i've ever given just a flat five it's 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 just a nothing it's just an average movie because the the terribleness and the coolness kind of like meet in the middle and kind of balance out. And it turns into just an average, an average nothing of a movie. All right. So they, they yin and yang each other to, to yeah. get balanced, to get flow. They 69 each other enough, like Debbie Does Dallas style, and they get in the middle. <laughs> All right. So a five for Robert and a 7.7 from Daniel Elwood on thelastnighters.com slash 37 episode on Smoking the Bandit. Uh, let's talk real briefly about what we're going to do next, because I know we really haven't discussed it. Um, is there anything yearning and burning in your heart, or should I throw a few things your way? You're really good at throwing new stuff my way. You're always launching new ideas in my direction. That's what we but, do here at the Launchpad Media. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. We could do a movie I just watched today, Coco. That was on Netflix. I watched that. It was okay. Um, I don't know. What are you thinking? You know, Coco feels like, with the Dia de los Muertos, that it's more of a Halloween-y time. So maybe in a, a month or so, maybe we could hit that up. Uh, you had talked about, a moment ago, the yin and yang, and the idea of remaking a movie and things you couldn't do in the remake. Like if you were to redo something in present day, that they would PC the shit out of it and make it a terrible movie. Therefore, I, I submit to you that perhaps we can do Magnificent Seven. Contrasting, the new one? Contrasting the new one versus the classic contrasting the origin or the, what do you even call it? The, um, the, the seven samurai, right? Is the inception point of the yes. movie. And then it became magnificent seven, which is a classic Western movie. And then yes. they remade it and shithoused it. So that might be a fun thing to do though. It does sort of involve a lot of watching of movies. Yeah. That's a big investment. I mean, I wouldn't say that magnificent seven is a terrible movie. The new one, um, it's definitely a, like another nothing movie. I think the first, you know, the original Magnificent Seven, not to blow my wad on this movie right now and in, in your ear hole right now, but the like the first one had a message and it kind of stood for something. And then the next one, in the recent one, it's like capitalism is evil and we're going to save you. Anyway, it's just a big muddled crap fest. So yeah, it might be fun to talk about. All right, well, let's focus on the the... Magnificent Seven, the older one, and then we'll we'll watch the newer one as well, but mostly focus on the one with the good message. Does that work for you? Magnificent Seven next week on the show? Okay, I've got to watch both movies. You have to watch both movies. You can't puss out on me and watch one movie and then 20 minutes of the other movie, like you did last time, you son of a bitch. Guardians of the Galaxy and Volume 2, which I, I was tempted the other night to finish watching it, but I was like, oh man, I just can't do it. It's just so bad. I went to bed instead. 
<laughs> well, you made, you made a value judgment there, and you probably chose correctly. I have chosen wisely. Oh, that's another thing we got to do soon. Uh, some Indiana Jones. Throw that out in your general direction. Also, some Monty Python. Dude, there's there's an unending supply of movies we can do. But we I are, agree. We are out of time here on this episode talking about Smoking the Bandit. Uh, if you enjoy what we do here, you can support us at various levels on Patreon. And you can find that at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. You can find this show at the Launchpad Media, which we've referred to several times, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Launchpadmedia.com. The is very important for that URL. Uh, we're going to do Magnificent 7 next week. I thank you very much for joining us for this this uh, fun episode, Trashing a Movie, cultural icon, Burt Reynolds, recently passing away. Uh, rest in peace, my man. You were cool. I will say that. He was a cool dude, rocking the mustache. And uh, with that, I will say good night from last night. And she's clean, Bob. We're back in the actual anarchy zone for a few more minutes before we get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters. And I think you heard all about how to get a piece of that earlier. Uh, Robert, what do you want to talk about for a few minutes with our anarchist friends here? We have anarchist friends? I think we do, yeah. I think most of the people who are our legacy listeners, they are close to us in spirit and philosophy. They've been with us for a long time, and they're good people. We like people like that. They're not statists. They believe in, in self-ownership and human freedom, not imposing their will upon others against, against their volition. You know, these are good people right here, and we, we, we need to share a few moments with them before we get in the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Well, if people are not listening to Peaceful Treason, we recently did an episode with those guys of the uh, Liberty Weekly I think it was episode four of the wild, wild country with those guys. And I had a great time on that episode. So I started listening to their show and those, those guys put on a good show. They also drink beer during the show, which is a good idea. I and mean, right now we're drinking wine, but it's not our fault. We were born this way, <laughs> but they, they, they tackle some good issues, some, some hard questions. Recently they did some episodes regarding you know, where does the culpability lie for somebody who's hiring a hitman? Oh, we've had that discussion, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good one. A lot of fun to hear them suss it out. I wanted them to get more into contracts and contract theory, but, um, you know, it's, it's it's tough to cover everything in, in, a, in a single episode. So um, I recommend that episode and other episodes that they've done. Uh, they're a great show. Check them out. And is their website just peacefultreason.com? And I can put a link to it on our uh on our show notes page here, which will be actualanarchy.com. Uh, what is this episode? 94. 94 episode. And the um, discussion we had with them for the Liberty Weekly summer special on Wild Wild Country can be found at libertyweekly.net slash WWC, where Patrick McFarlane was the first and fifth episode, and then we had a bunch of guest hosts for the uh, middle episodes. And that was a that was a really fun series. I enjoyed uh, doing that and, and getting the exposure and meeting a lot of interesting people and peaceful treason. You're right. They, they were really good guys and that was a lot of fun. So I highly recommend checking them out and check out that series. Give a little love over to uh, Pat McFarlane over at Liberty Weekly. He's doing a great job over there. He just passed the bar. Now he's a full fledged, um, agent of the court or officer of the court. So he's a full blown, um, some people are calling him a status now, which is kind of interesting. Full blown status. That son of a bitch. But I will I will say this. Uh, he made that decision to go into that field before he became an anarchist. Also, if the monopoly on justice is a state-driven system, then if you are accused of something, you're going to want someone who has a similar philosophy to you to know the ins and outs of it to be able to defend you against it. And so I think that there is a great opportunity for someone like him to be in a position to really help someone against um, you know, a, a, an injustice in the carrying out of justice. Has he decided what exactly he's going to be going into in terms of what form of law he's going to be studying? Is it going to be criminal defense? Does he know? Well, you know, he's now uh, working for a firm and he has cases, uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, I imagine if you're not in the prosecutor's office, you're defending people, right? Or you're representing people in um, civil cases against other people. Yes. I don't really know how it all works, but perhaps we should have him on again and do um, him as a guest on, say, Liar Liar, the Jim Carrey movie. That might be kind of fun. Maybe. 
And especially because Jim Carrey just came out saying, uh, we got to try a little socialism. Don't be afraid of the word. As he says these things from either the penthouse in Manhattan or the $15 million mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's clearly all about sharing his wealth. It's true. Now he I did, love how generous he is with other people's money. Well, he did earn that money in a very capitalist way. Yes, yes, he did. In a very meritocratic capitalist way. Right. And he, voluntary means and by being the best comedian and actor at the time. Let me show you something. He improved the lives of millions of people because they voluntarily chose to part with some of their money to be entertained by him. Yeah. And he's calling for a return to in living color, which is kind of funny. It would be all a bunch of like 60-year-old men. Who couldn't say anything. <laughs> all their jokes would be so uh, off-color to be a little bit punny here at the end of our show. Um, yeah, could you imagine them doing In Living Color these days? I think it would be a watered-down version of what the show used to be. Yeah, and uh, even the Chappelle show, he, he couldn't do his show right now. Uh, and uh, Seinfeld, he said he won't do college campus tours anymore because he... he I mean, Seinfeld, he, he's not a controversial guy. He's the most milk-toast comedian. If you watch his stand-up, it is like vanilla. It, it's it's the, the least offensive comedy of all time. Yeah, so what is the deal with that? Anyway, they're what? killing comedy. And, uh, yeah, I think that'll make the uh, next episode, not that it's a comedy, but the whole contrast between how a good movie can be ruined by trying to cater to all these snowflake interests. Yeah, and people overreact to this vocal minority. They'll, there's a saying out there on the Internet, get woke, go broke, because they overemphasize inclusion and diversity at the expense of, say, story and coherence. Like they'll just change a character's ethnicity for no reason other than to be inclusive and whatever. And people don't generally tend to, the vast majority of people don't really want to be preached to and be politicized, have their entertainment be, you know, preachy political crap. And so people will turn away from it and not go to see that movie. And you'll see a lot of backlash, even though you're satisfying the SJWs, sort of, because they're actually never happy. You try to do it, but then they're not going to, they're going to be like, wasn't there like in Black Panther when it was like all black people, but then people were upset that there weren't any like gay trans black people or, you know, like disfigured gay trans like people or disabled gay trans unicorn people or whatever. It's just never enough. So why even bother, especially when it's going to cost you? It makes a whole less sense. Even though Black Panther, of course, made a billion dollars, that's not a good example. But, you know, in most instances, when companies try to, like, preach at their customer base, like virtue signal and show how great of a company are and how inclusive and whatever and how lefty social agenda-y they are, it ends up being a big turnoff and they end up losing money. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think uh, even the NFL's ratings are down as a result of this kneeling and not kneeling and then all the... Um involvement with the military worship. I mean, they're, they're starting to throw in these things into what should just be entertainment. And you're right, people don't want to have every little thing politicized. And so I think there is some pushback to that. Uh, the Nike ad with Kaepernick, um, which I think is is an interesting thing to talk about. And maybe we can get into that in our um, Kathleen Turner Overdrive because we're our show's getting a little long here. But the one point I'll make is that there was an, an immediate um, stock hit to Nike, but then it has since recovered. And it's actually brilliant marketing because now there's i've seen probably a hundred different memes that are built off of the kaepernick ad of you know other people just making like other subjects and other little taglines um they're getting all of this brand awareness and uh free advertising as a result and i think in the long run it's actually going to do do them uh pretty well so yeah they could be it could turn out to be good for them it's possible um, but it will polarize people who would otherwise see them as a neutral shoe manufacturer. I mean, it's interesting how the left is now like rushing to defend Nike and like embrace Nike when only like a year ago or more, they were like really upset at Nike for their quote sweatshops. But now you won't hear that at all. Right. And, and charging $300 for shoes and yeah. people in inner cities were killing each other for the shoes. Right. It's like these, you paid some Guatemalan like five cents to make these and now you're charging $200 and how immoral you are, Nike. But now everybody loves Nike on the left. It's, it's like they don't care. They just want to win. They don't actually have any kind of principles. And I'll defend Nike for their sweatshops, 100%. It's better than the alternative. Not offering them any better job. That's right. 
That's right. It's actually improving their lives. And you and I might look at it in horror and be like, we wouldn't do that. Because in a way, when people talk about privilege, in a way, they're kind of right. Like we were privileged to be born where we were born and to have a certain level of comfort that is the norm for us. And so putting us in their shoes, we would see it as horrific. But if we grew up there and that was our reality, what we knew, it would be an opportunity for us to have a better situation to be able to work in a factory than the alternative. Absolutely. But I think we're uh, running out of time here. If you did want to talk about it on a KTO, I think we've already, did you blow your nut? I've got plenty of stuff for Kathleen Turner Overdrive. So let's wrap this up. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, talking ever so briefly about Smoking the Bandit and about a bunch, a bunch of other random random topics. Uh, show notes and more can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 94. I'm also going to include on the show notes page a, um, a video of Milton Friedman on Donahue talking about uh, the ICC and the CAB uh, deregulation that happened in the late 70s. And he talks about how it actually improved things. This is also the same um, show he was on where he did his famous What is Greed? Um, little diatribe talking about uh, you think that communist countries don't run on greed. What is greed? Uh, so it's a really cool um, thing. It's Milton Friedman's an interesting guy. I, I think he's wrong in a lot of areas, but he was a great debater and a great orator and uh, really good on certain aspects of economics, especially with minimum wage and uh, like supply and demand and those types of things. So I'll post that in the show notes page. And uh, let's get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, shall we? Let's do it. Thanks, everybody. All right. Peace out, everyone. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do